0: Lord, then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham or Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands, into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Let's continue reading. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Ashkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Brothers and sisters, the last time that we considered the book of Genesis, we learned of a war that was taking place between the nations. Four superpowers. This is the condensed version of what we talked about last week. Four superpowers, led by Chedleamor, king of Elam, Elam, united in order to suppress a rebellion taking place among five other oppressed nations, or nations that they were oppressing, that they were overpowering. These five oppressed nations, they'd grown weary of paying taxes to Chedleamor, king of Elam, Elam, and so they united these five. Uh, weaker nations. They united in hopes that they might remove themselves from the oppression that was Chedorlai Amar. The king of Elam, Chedorlai Amar, and three other nations, they are the superpower nations. All four of them together are the superpower nations. They march forward toward this rebellion to squash the rebellion taking place or uprising among the five nations. And along the way to squash this rebellion of the five nations, they conquer six other nations. Finally, they arrive at the valley of Sidim and they lined up for battle against the five oppressed or weaker nations and their kings. These four superpower nations overpowered the oppressed weaker nations, sending them running for the hills. After their victory, these superpower nations begin to loot and pillage all the spoils of war. They take food, they take supplies, they even take people as prisoners of war. We learn that one of the people, one of those prisoners of war, was Abram's nephew, Lot. Lot, who had, in the previous chapter, if you remember, chapter 13, he had been offered any portion of the promised land by his uncle, Abram. And He chose the land that was most well watered, a land that was in close proximity to Sodom. So he leaves Abram, Lot does, and he goes and lives near Sodom. He chooses to be neighbors with Sodom. As Revelation progresses, we learn that Lot was no longer living in close proximity to Sodom, but that Lot was actually living in Sodom. The prophet Moses tells us in chapter 13, uh, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked. Or wicked exceedingly. And they were sinners against the Lord. Lot was not ignorant of the wicked sinfulness of the people of Sodom. And yet, he chose to make his home. Not no longer near Sodom, but among the Sodomites. As we have said before. The unwise choices of Lot will become increasingly confusing as the scriptures declare, because the scriptures declare that Lot was righteous. So as we're looking at the life of Lot, we will say, how in the world is this person a believer? But yet, Second Peter chapter 2 declares Lot was righteous. And even in the midst of his righteous stance before God, he was making very unwise decisions decisions that we would not that we would not say are becoming of a person who has been made righteous by God but yet the bible declares that he was righteous lot was a believer one of the people who escaped as uh these people were being taken as as prisoners of war he comes to abram and tells abram that lot his nephew has been captured abram along with his allies prepared to rescue lot and devised a plan to attack the enemy And when did they decide to attack the enemy? What was their plan? Attack them by night. To attack them by night. So Abram, along with his allies, overcame these superpowers with a a sneak attack. They overcome them at night. Now, remember, as we said last week, these superpowers are, are so powerful that they have already conquered 11 other nations. These superpowers are... The nation that will eventually become Persia and Babylon. These are those powers. And yet these powers are no match for Abram and his small little band of Hebrews. Those who have crossed over. Why? How was Abram able to overpower these powerful nations? We said last week because Abram was not fighting by himself. No, he was not also, uh, we are not also mentioning that he was fighting with the three other allies, but God, the Lord himself fought for Abram. God, the Lord himself gave Abram the victory over these powerful nations. And how so? Because God was being faithful to the promise that he gave Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and verse two saying, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God was fulfilling his promise to Abram. When Abram finally returned from the battle, he was greeted by two kings. The king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Consider with me briefly the king of Sodom. He was the king of a city known for what? For sinful wickedness. He was the king of a city that would later become the object of God's wrath. He was the king of a city who more than likely not only condoned, but promoted the sins of his city, possibly even leading them in their sinfulness. He's come out to meet Abram, but he did not come out blessing the God of uh, heaven and earth. He did not come out blessing even Abram, if you will, but he has come out. To meet and greet Abram with selfish motives and with selfish propositions. He is coming out to see what he might gain from Abram. The king of Sodom has come to bargain with him. He says in verse 21 of chapter 14, Give the people to me. Now listen to this. Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now pause for a second and ask yourself, let's ask together, who has Abram gone out to rescue specifically? He's gone out to rescue Lot. Though the king of Sodom is asking for people, it is not outside of his request to also be asking for, for Lot. Because Lot was one of those people who was taken from Sodom as a prisoner of war. And he is living in Sodom. And so Sodom, the king, the king of Sodom is saying, give me back Lot. It was not outside of his request. And the request is reminiscent of Satan's request of Simon Peter. The Lord Jesus said to Simon Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one: 31, the Lord uh, says to him, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Or, or another version says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you. But the Lord responds, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Abram was unwilling to barter and bargain with the king of Sodom. And although we shall see that righteous lot will return to Sodom. Think about that. Rescued from Sodom and will say thanks, uh, Uncle Abram. And then go back to living in Sodom eventually. Abram was not willing to take so much as even a shoestring from the king of Sodom. He would not bargain with him. He would not have anything to do with this wicked king. And we are to learn from Abram's unwillingness to receive from the king of Sodom that we must have nothing to do, no kind of relationship with the wicked sinfulness of this world. We are not to be a friend of the world, lest we become an enemy of God. Now, this does not mean that we are not to be vigilant in our evangelism to the world, but it does. And it doesn't mean that we are not to pay respect to uh, unbelievers Because unbelievers are image bearers of God as well. But that we be a people who do not live and do not attempt to live in two different worlds. That we not be a people who are in love with two different worlds. That we not be a people who are seeking to be a part of two different kingdoms. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ says that we can't. We can't live in two different worlds. That we will we can't have two masters, he says. That we will either love the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. But you can't be in love with both. You must be committed to one or the other. You can't have two masters. We who confess Christ must unashamedly live as people who have been purchased, redeemed. That is, rescued. As Abram rescued Lot, we must live as a people who have been redeemed, rescued, by someone greater than Abram, the Lord Jesus Christ, and live as citizens of the kingdom, not of this world, but of the kingdom of God. But there is another king presented here in this narrative, isn't there? His name is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of Salem who points to the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Melchizedek will be our focus, our main focus in our time of worship today. And I have for you this morning just two points. Number one, it's going to seem like a long and maybe a weird point, but it's the best that I had as I was studying. What we know and what we don't know about this mysterious king, Melchizedek. That's a long one, isn't it? What we know and what we don't know about this mysterious king, Melchizedek. Now, let me pause for a second. How many of you have ever even heard of Melchizedek by a show of hands? How many of you have been plagued by the mysterious figure, meaning, who is this? Where did he come from? Anybody else? Great. So hopefully, this morning, we can answer some of those questions that maybe we've had about Melchizedek. Let me say to you, he's not as mysterious as he is presented to be. Verse eighteen of Chapter Fourteen, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God most High. He blessed him and said, "Blessed be Abram, God of most high, uh, Abram of God most High, sorry, possessor of heaven and earth, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Can you turn that down a little bit? I know you're comfy. I got it. <laughs> as Abram now returns from the battle. He was met by another king. Now, we're going to walk slow through this. His name is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Abram was greeted by this king, refreshed by this king, and blessed by this king. Those are three points that maybe you should write down. He was greeted by the king after a war, after a battle, refreshed by the king after the battle, and blessed by the king. Now, those are not three points that we're going to walk through. They are three points that you should take note of, though. Who was this Melchizedek? Where did he come from? It would seem as if this king just appears out of nowhere. And he kind of does. And just as quickly as he appears in this narrative, he just as quickly disappears from the narrative. Who is this God-fearing man who seems to appear out of nowhere in the land of Canaan? For that is where they are. What do we know about Melchizedek? There are some things that we know, and many things that we don't know. Let's let's focus on first what we do know, and we'll contrast back and forth. We do know that Melchizedek worshipped the Lord Most High, and that he lived in the Promised Land. We do know that he worships God Most High. You you see that as he comes out. Uh, blessed be Abram, right? He said, blessed be God most high, he says first. Blessed be God most high, possessor of of, of heaven and earth. So he is a worshiper of God, worshiper of the Lord most high. And he also is living in the land that God has promised to give Abram and his descendants. He's living in this land and he worships the same God as Abram. We We do know that. We got that? He worships the same God as Abram. And he lives in the promised land. What we don't know. We don't know when, where, or how he was converted. He's a worshiper of God. But we don't know when his conversion took place. He was a believer. And Abram recognized that. You see that? Uh, Melchizedek was a believer. And Abram recognizes that this man shares his faith in God. Now, there is good reason to believe. Now, we're asking the question... When, where, how did he become a believer? We don't know. But here's what we do know. There's good reason, let's say that. There's good reason to believe that the sons of Noah, which are Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they were possibly still alive at the time of Abram. Now think about that. Though they have uh, exited, if you will, from this narrative, it is possible that they have not exited the earth, that they are still alive at that time. And uh, they were not far removed from the life of Abram. So they are possibly still living. Therefore, it is probable that Abram was not the only man on the earth who heard and believed the gospel and had been brought to saving faith. Got that? So when we see Abram, we must not assume that of all the entire earth, Abram was the only per- person who possesses faith in God. It may seem like that as we're reading, but remember... The Scriptures have gone from a a macro view of here's everything to a micro view focusing on just one family. But that one family is not the only family that possesses faith in God. Are you with me? So we don't know where, how Melchizedek was given faith, but at some point he heard the gospel. And at some point he was given faith to believe in the skull-crushing seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we... Uh, don't know, but we can assume. Are you with me? We do know his name. Melchizedek. And we do know what it means. Melchizedek, Melki, which means king, and Zedek, meaning righteousness. His name is king of righteousness. Melchizedek, Melki Zedek, king of righteousness. We know his name. We don't know if he was born with that name. Or if that name was given to him in honor of the righteous way that he ruled Salem. Got that? That contrast? We know his name. We know what it means. We don't know how we got it. Which leads us to the next thing that we do know about Melchizedek. He is the righteous king. That that is what his name means. Of Salem. Salem, which is much like the word shalom. What does shalom mean? Peace. Salem and Shalom both mean the same word, peace. Melchizedek is the righteous king of peace. That is quite a title, isn't it? This man who appears out of nowhere, who is the righteous king of peace, should sound familiar. He was the king of Salem, which is believed to be later Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The righteous king of peace gives peace to all those who live in his kingdom. If Melchizedek was your king, you were at peace. So we do know his name, but here's another thing that we don't know. We don't know his genealogy. Now, genealogies have been interesting up until this point, haven't they? They've been. Uh, We are in chapter 14, and if you've been with us for the year and a half or so that we've been in Genesis, we've learned that genealogies come out come up a lot in the book of genesis but it's interesting that we have this very uh prominent figure the righteous king of peace but we have no idea where he's come from up until now we've seen that the, that genealogies are a big focus in the book of genesis and then all of a sudden here's this righteous king of peace and we have no idea who, he's, who he is descended from one of the most, uh, of all the, the significant characters that are presented to us in the scriptures thus far in Genesis, we are most often given their genealogy except for here. Now, why is that so? We have a righteous king, uh, a king of peace, uh, uh, one who is also described for us as, we'll talk about this in a minute, as priest of God most high, and we have no idea who or where he's come from. It is safe to say that he was not related to Abram. That's important. Because he's living where? In Canaan. Abram has traveled to Canaan. Abram is not from Canaan. Though we shall see that all men, and we know this, all men have descended from Adam. All men have also descended from Noah. Melchizedek was living in Canaan. He was not a Hebrew. He was not of the nation that would be known as those who cross over, but he was given faith to believe in the one true God, though he was not a Hebrew, which means he was a Gentile. Because if you're not a Hebrew, you're a what? You're a Gentile. You're either Jew or Gentile. So we know that this Melchizedek was not a Hebrew, but we don't know his genealogy. We do know that Abram, or that Melchizedek, did I say Abram? I meant Melchizedek. Melchizedek refreshed Abram after the battle. We do know this. Uh, Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Abram and his men have fought. And because God most high, Abram was given the victory over his enemy. They were then greeted and refreshed by Melchizedek. Who does something very interesting. He blesses Abram with bread and wine. And also blesses Abram. We know that Melchizedek, as the Bible says, was priest. That's important to write down. Priest of God most high. Verse 18, now, he was priest of God most high, the Bible says. Why is that important? This is the first time in the scriptures that we have seen the term used. Now, that's important. We've seen the term used priest. Was Melchizedek the first priest? No. Although this is the first time the term has been used, this is not the first priest that we have in the scriptures. Who's the first priest? Adam. Very good class. Adam is the first priest. This is the first explicit use of the term priest in the scriptures And it is used to describe, listen to this, someone who's not a Hebrew. That's interesting. The first time the word priest is used, it is used to describe someone who is not a Hebrew. But someone who is a Gentile. Why do I say that? We'll get to that in a moment. As priest, it was his job to lead people in worship. That's the job of a priest. To offer sacrifices on their behalf. But Melchizedek, this is important, Melchizedek was not a priest, I'm going to use this theological term, by pedigree. He was not priest by pedigree, meaning he was not priest by birth. Are you with me? We will learn that in order for one to be a priest, they must come from the lineage or pedigree of Levi, Aaron's the, the descendants of Aaron. And he's not a Hebrew. He is not a Levite. And he is a priest. This is going to be very important. Melchizedek was not made priest because of his ancestry or pedigree, but he was made priest by divine appointment of God. God has made him priest. And this point that Melchizedek was priest of God, it's not a random point in the scriptures. It's a very intentional, important point that Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving to us we shall see that there was a great and eternal purpose in mentioning that melchizedek was priest of god most high now this is what we do know and what we don't know of melchizedek from genesis chapter 14 now just as quickly as we see this this melchizedek greet abram It's just as quickly as we see Melchizedek exit the scene. And we are left saying, wait, 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 wait. Who is this man? Where did he come from? Why is he here? What's the meaning of this mystery? Brothers and sisters, it's intentional. God the Holy Spirit superintended that the writers of the scriptures speak of Melchizedek in this mysterious way. For he was intended to point to someone else who would clarify him. Does that make sense? He, he's intended to point to someone else who would uh, interpret him fully. That's a better theological way to say that. So let's go to our next point. Melchizedek. And here's the answer. The type of Christ. Melchizedek. The type of Christ is our next point. <clears throat> Based on what we know and what we don't know about Melchizedek, Here's what maybe we have done in the past. Many have concluded, especially those in the early church, many have concluded that Melchizedek is a Christophany. Maybe you've never heard that word. Christophany. Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, before His incarnation. It's called a Christophany. So many believe, especially in the early church, that is the early church uh, writers and believers, that Melchizedek was actually the Lord Jesus Christ before the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did they do that? They did that because in the early church especially, they were seeking to see Christ in everything. They were seeking to see Christ in every verse, every line, every person. And so they concluded, and I understand their conclusion. I understand their reasoning behind believing that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. But the scriptures... Declare the opposite. Are you with me? I understand why someone might believe. That this is Christ before his incarnation. But the scriptures refute that idea. Melchizedek was a mysterious king. Who again disappears and then uh, 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 appears and then abruptly disappears. But. But. As revelation, that is God's word, as revelation progresses and is further revealed, we are given more insight into this supposed mysterious king. And let, let me say supposed and also intentionally mysterious king. Let's go to Psalm 110. It's a very short psalm, but it is a psalm that is prophetically speaking about the Messiah, What about the Messiah? The power and authority that he shall possess as he holds office of not only king, but priest. Hopefully, Lord willing, you are connecting the dots. Psalm 110, verse 1 through 10. We'll read the whole psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, and pastors, they did a great sermon on this two weeks ago. So please go back and listen to this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a, your, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now, there there is a great deal of emphasis on the authority, power, and kingship of the Messiah. That's one aspect of this psalm. Then we go to the second half of the psalm and listen to the emphasis. So the first half is the emphasis on the office of the Messiah's kingship. He shall be king and he shall rule. The second half of this psalm focuses on a different office of the same king. Got me? Let's go to that. It says... The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. What has the Lord sworn? You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There he is the Lord is at your right hand. He shall he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge nations or judge. He will judge among the nations and he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men Over a broad country, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So then the scriptures go from focusing on the kingship office of Christ, the Messiah, to the priestly office of the Messiah, and then back to the kingly rule of the Messiah. But notice that within that passage of Psalm 110, there is a mention of Melchizedek. Now, the kings, if you were to be a king, you were to come from the tribe of what tribe? Judah. If you were to be a king, you were to come from the tribe of Judah. Now, if you were to be a priest, you were to come from the tribe of of Levi. You could be priest if you descended from the Levites. And you could be king if you descended from the, the, the tribe of Judah. But listen to this, but you couldn't be both. Are you with me? You could be king if you were from the tribe of Judah. Priest if you were from the tribe of Levi. But you couldn't be both. The question is, where and how does Melchizedek fit into this equation? Why? Why do we say that? Because we have no idea where Melchizedek came from. We have no record of his genealogy. And yet, he is both king of Salem and priest of God Most High. And yet he does not descend from Levi because he's a what? He's a Gentile. And he's not from the tribe of Judah. And yet he's a king. He is both king and priest. Now the prophet David, did you guys know David was a prophet? Because he's looking at back at Genesis 14, which we're studying today. And he's uh, given the significance of Melchizedek. He's doing what we're doing today, reading Genesis 14 and saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is giving or interpreting for David who and what Melchizedek is. Are you with me? And the offices that he holds. He was not present in Genesis 14. Just to be present in Genesis 14 and only to bless Abram. But he serves a purpose in Genesis 14 as serving as a type of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is there. Not just to be there, but to to serve as a type or shadow or as one who would point to what Christ would be. Now, if we just had that there and left him there, he would be very mysterious. But God is progressively revealing, progressively interpreting for us acts in the past and making them known in the, in, in the present of what they were all intended for. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, looks back at this priest king with no genealogy and interprets Melchizedek as one who would ultimately point to Christ who has no earthly genealogy if you will because why he's born of the spirit he is the son of god incarnate there is no beginning of days or end of life for him which we'll get to in just a moment in christ david was given insight that melchizedek and his offices served the purpose of giving us insight into the seed of the woman we haven't lost sight of that have we everything is is looking back at the promised seed of the woman and looking forward at what God is doing as Revelation is progressing and as he will be revealed. Now, how many instances or places do we have in Revelation up to uh, Psalm 110 that are giving us insight into Melchizedek? We have two spots, two places, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. Until we come to the book of Hebrews. So we have this this mysterious king in Genesis fourteen. There's a a a, a more insight given to us in Psalm one ten, and then Christ appears, and after Christ lives, dies, ascends or rises and ascends. Now the Lord Jesus gives or God gives more insight into Melchizedek, not with one verse or two, three verses, not with one psalm, but now with three chapters in the book of hebrews three chapters five six and seven we will focus on chapter seven okay so what's happening scripture is now looking back and interpreting for us what that was or as one of our theologians like to say this was that all right psalm or uh, hebrews chapter seven i believe i said that earlier so that you guys could already be there let me get there quickly Hebrews chapter 7. And I, I want to read the entire chapter so that you can get a full sense of this, okay? For this Melchizedek, here he is. King of Salem. Priest of God Most High, or Most High God. Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by translation of his name what does it mean king of righteousness we just learned that and then also king of salem which means peace which is king of peace we just learned that right scripture is telling us giving us insight into that which which we have learned where did we get that information from the scriptures going on without father now listen to this without father without mother without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Here he is. But made what? Like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Let me read quickly now. Now observe how this great man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from all the people so Scripture's saying he's a priest just as the priests collect a tenth melchizedek was collecting a tenth right from their brethren although these are descended from abraham but the one who has genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from abraham and blessed the one who had the promises scripture is saying levites receive from their brothers a tenth but this man was not one of their brothers, meaning he was not in their family, and yet he collects a tent as a priest. Moving on. But without any dispute, the lesser, what, is blessed by the greater? In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it was it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Uh, real quick, that's basically saying Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek even when Levi was not alive because Levi is a descendant of Abraham, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. It's showing the greatness of Melchizedek. Moving on, verse 11. Now, if... Perfection was through the Levitical priesthood for on the basis of it, the people receive the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priest is priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also for the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord Jesus, that's what we're speaking of, was descended from Judah, a tribe with, to, with, tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests, meaning priests don't come from Judah. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law or physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, God did this, for it is attested of him, and he quotes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of Christ. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is a beginning in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, and in so much... As it was not without oath. For they indeed became priests without oath. But he with an oath through the one who said to him. The Lord has shown and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Quoting Psalm 110 again. So much. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priest on the one hand existed in greater numbers. Because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus. Jesus. On the other hand, because he continues for whole, forever, holds his priesthood permanently, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for, for them. Let's stop right there. Now, there's a lot there, isn't there? Let's explain this. It is important for us to understand the context of the book of Hebrews. We just read it. Here's the context. Both the Jews, both Jews, the Jews were offended by what Christians were claiming. The Jews were saying this group of Christians is a new cult, a new sect. They're dangerous. These Christians were making the claim that Jews, uh, the Christians were were making the claim that the Jews and the Gentiles let me start over. Christians were making the claim. I wrote this wrong on my Ah. Jews were upset. Sorry. Give me grace. Jews were upset that the Christians were making the claim that they had the the audacity to make the claim that they were true descendants of Abraham. Let me say that again so that Jews were upset that Gentiles, non-Jews, were making the claim that they were true descendants of Abraham. You could see why that would make them upset. They also claim, these Gentiles, that they actually were true Israel. Now, that would make a uh, born of Abraham Jew very upset. These Christians claim that they were the ones who had a true understanding of the Old Testament, while the Jews were the ones who were actually blind. That they were blinded to the reality of salvation that is found in none other but the Lord Jesus Christ. This greatly offended the Jews. So the Jews attacked the Christians on two fronts. Politically and intellectually. On the political front, they appealed to the Roman authorities by saying these Christians are a dangerous cult that are threatening the peace of Rome. You should take care of them. Now, the Roman authorities, not wanting to disturb the Jews because they were living or occupying the Jewish space, decided that they would persecute the Christians. So they put many Christians in jail. They took their property and they even put them to death. Now, on the intellectual side, the Jews challenged the Christians with questions about Abraham. How are you a descendant of Abraham? Question them about Israel. How are you true Israel? Israel you're a Gentile. They questioned them about the law, about Moses, about the temple, about circumcision and many other things. All of these questions, they began to cause great dismay in the church. People in the church began to be frustrated because they couldn't answer all of the questions. So they stopped gathering because of persecution And because of not being able to answer some of these intellectual and theological questions. One of the great questions that plagued the Christians was, and how is Jesus your priest? The Christians believe that Christ was the true and final high priest who eternally represents his people before God. Which meant that the entire Old Testament system had been fulfilled in Christ the Jews' response was, well, excuse me, according to the Old Testament, only the sons of who can be priest? Exactly. So how can Jesus be a priest, your eternal priest? He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. Therefore, he cannot be priest. You have no scriptural basis for your claim that Christ is a priest. Thus, the book of Hebrews was written to encourage the believers to equip and clarify that Christ not only fulfills the institutions of the prominent figures, uh, uh, institutions and the prominent figures of the Old Testament, he was so much better than all of them. The seventh chapter, that one that we've just read, it addresses one specific challenge from the Jews to the Christians about the priesthood of Christ. Now, how does the writer of the Hebrews begin this seven chapter? Look at uh, chapter seven again. How does he begin? Where does he begin? Brothers and sisters, uh, what is the main text of our uh, study today? Genesis chapter 14. Where does the writer to the Hebrews begin his argument? To argue for the fact that Christ is a priest. Where does he begin? Genesis chapter 14. He goes back to Genesis 14. And we believe this is Paul. And and does so in a way that he is interpreting for the Jews and for us today. Genesis chapter 14. So if you want to say, I don't understand who Melchizedek is. It's just so mysterious. Well, read your Bible. Because the Bible interprets him for us. The only perfect interpreter of the Holy Scriptures is the Holy Spirit as he's revealed himself to us in the Holy Scriptures. The perfect infallible interpreter of the Scriptures is the Holy Scriptures. Amen? Therefore, when we read Genesis 14, we are not to walk away from Genesis 14 and say, I don't understand it. Melchizedek is so shrouded in mystery. Why are we not to say that? Because God has explained him for us. And what has God explained for us? Here is not found in Genesis 14. It's this. That the mystery of Melchizedek, again, as I've said over and over again, is intentional. That his seemingly seeming to have no father, seeming to have no mother, seeming seeming to have no genealogy or beginning of life or end of days because we don't know where he came from. And then he just exit exits. It's intentional. Brothers and sisters, did Melchizedek have a father and mother? Yes, he did. Did he have a genealogy? Yes, he did. Did he have a beginning of life and an end of life? Yes, he did. Why aren't those things recorded for us? Because scripture done that on purpose. Scripture did that on God, the Holy Spirit did that on purpose. Because Melchizedek, in his mystery, was to point to Christ as the one who fulfills all of those mysteries. The Bible says in verse 3 of chapter 7, he was made like the Son of God. He was not the Son of God. Melchizedek was not a Christophany. He is not Christ before Christ. He's like Christ. He's a type of Christ. But he's not the Son of God himself. Amen. The lack of genealogy. For Melchizedek was to point to Christ, who was not born through natural birth, not through man and woman being together, but by supernatural birth, born by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is God, as Pastor Zay talked about last week. He is God, truly God, and truly man. Therefore, in one sense, he does not have a genealogy, because is there any beginning with God? And is there any end with God? No, there is not. This Melchizedek was to point to the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate or the son of God. Let's say it that way. He was to point to the eternal sonship of the son of God, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And while the Jews continued to point to Abraham as the greatest of all, they looked, they, listen to this, they, they continue to point to Abraham. is the greatest. Abraham is our father. They overlooked one interesting fact. That Melchizedek blessed Abraham Now what does that have to do with anything Abraham paid a tithe a tenth to Melchizedek Did did Abraham bless Melchizedek or did Melchizedek bless Abraham Melchizedek blessed Abraham What does that mean the writer of the Hebrews tells us it's because the lesser blessed or, or the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Abraham, they say, is, is great. And yet Melchizedek is being paid tithes to the so-called great one. Therefore, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. See how they overlook that? Abraham is so great and yet they overlooked that. He was not greater than Melchizedek because he paid tithes to Melchizedek. In Melchizedek, Abraham recognized something. I'm saying Abraham, although he's not Abraham yet, but I'm saying Abraham. Abraham recognized something. What he recognized. Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was greater than he was. How so? He recognized that Melchizedek held a greater office than he did. That Melchizedek was both Priest and king. And in uh, Abraham looking at Melchizedek, he didn't see Melchizedek. He saw Christ. Abraham saw the kingship of Christ. He saw the priesthood of Christ. He saw the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. Jesus said about Abraham, he was overjoyed to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham is looking at Melchizedek and not seeing Melchizedek, but seeing Christ, the one who was greater than even himself. That's why Melchizedek was greater, because Abraham was seeing he is representing Christ. He is representing the offices of Christ. He is greater than I am. Not in his humanity, per se, because Melchizedek was a man. But Abraham was seeing beyond Melchizedek. He was seeing Christ. This is huge. While Christ did not come from the tribe of Levi, Melchizedek did not legitimize his ordination as priest through the pedigree of his lineage either. Meaning this, Melchizedek did not say, I'm I'm a Levite as well, I can be priest. That was not the, the legitimization of his priesthood. He was legitimized as priest because he was divinely ordained by God Most High. And his priesthood was meant to point us to an eternal priesthood of Christ, who was anointed as a, a priest by God Most High. The writer to the Hebrews once again interprets Melchizedek's presence for us by then using Psalm 110. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Priest forever. This priest was Christ. Forever. He's not in the order or lineage of, of Levi. He was in the order or lineage of who? Melchizedek because Melchizedek is made a priest. Christ is also made priest in that same way. He doesn't need to be a part of Levi's tribe in order to be priest. Just like Melchizedek didn't need to be a part of Levi's tribe to be priest. Does that make sense? Remember, the the Christians are making an argument to the Jews of why Christ is priest. They're basically saying, oh, you don't think that Christ can be priest because he's not a Levite. Go tell that to Melchizedek. Make sense? The old priest, the Bible says, they died. All of them died. But Christ rose from the dead. He is not dead. He is alive. He is our permanent and eternal priest forever. He stands in the gap, making intercession for all whom he represents. How can Christ be king if he's not from Levi? Go ask Melchizedek. He was not from the line of Levi, and yet he was a priest, one greater than Melchizedek and even greater than Abraham. His greatness was not intended to end with himself, Melchizedek, but it was intended to point us to Christ. And I think these verses, verse 26 and 28, are fitting for us, and we're... We're about to close. Verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices. First for his own sin. He doesn't need to offer up sacrifices for his own sin, right? And then for the sins of the people, because he did not once, because he did once for all when he offered up himself, For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which has come after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Melchizedek, he fits as an appropriate precursor to Christ. He teaches us that there is one greater than Abram. Hebrews was written to help the Jews understand that there is something greater than the Abrahamic covenant. And someone greater than Abraham, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham interacted with someone greater than himself. So we must not focus on Abraham. It was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek pointed to Christ. Christ who inaugurated a new covenant. We can't miss that Abraham or Abram was pointing forward to someone greater than himself. The seed of the woman who all of this is pointing forward to. We are not to look to the greatness of Abraham. We are not to look to the greatness of Melchizedek. We are to look to the greatness of Christ. Melchizedek teaches us even that there is someone greater than himself. All of his offices and all of his signs point to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was only priest and only king. Christ was priest, king, and prophet. And that's exactly where Hebrews begins. God has spoken to us in many ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Jesus is better than both of them. And all of them. He is our prophet. He is our priest. And he is our king. Now listen. Why is all of this important? You've come this morning. And you may have come saying, what does this do for my marriage? How does this help me with my kids? How does this even help me in my pilgrimage in this temporal world? Why are you... Focusing today only on these rich and biblical truths, although I know they're true. My friend, all of this helps you to consider Christ, who is greater than your marriage, who is greater than your temporal relationships, who is greater than your kids, who is greater than your jobs, who is greater than anything on this, in this temporal world. Christ is greater. Now, this is also an anchor for your soul, understanding all of these rich biblical truths through the scriptures. Listen, what was Melchizedek? And listen to this, and what is the Old Testament for that matter? Our sister Ophelia brought something up to me recently that at first kind of uh, didn't jar me, and then as I began to think of it more, it did jar me. And there was a quote from a man named Andy Stanley. You may know his father, Charles Stanley. Andy Stanley said recently, this year in May, Peter, James, now this is all in relationship to what is the Old Testament? What's the purpose of all of this today? Here's what Andy Stanley said. Peter, James, and Paul elected to, here's the word, unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must do the same. Did you hear that? Unhitch from the Jewish scriptures. He's essentially saying we must unhitch, loose ourselves from the Old Testament. He went on to say Jesus's new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us can stand on its own two nailed, scarred, resurrected feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. Brothers and sisters, what is the purpose of the Old Testament? Why do we carry the Old and New Testament with us? Why do we not only pass out to you a New Testament when you come into this church? We've been in Genesis now for over a year and a half. It's the Old Testament. We've just spent about an hour talking about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Are we wasting our time? The Old Testament in its entirety is necessary. In order to gain an understanding of the gospel. Even though the Old Testament and the Old Covenant does not contain the gospel that was accomplished. It is necessary to have. Why? It's necessary to to know and understand and see the covenant of works. To have the Old Covenant. To have the sacrificial system. To have the priesthood. It's important for us to have the temple because all of these things in all of these things, the gospel is being pictured in types and shadows until the substance was revealed and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah Cox said it better than I. Nevertheless, the greater light of the New Testament does in no way abate the usefulness of the Old Testament. Rather... It obliges all the more to a humble and diligent study of it. Why? Why, uh, Nehemiah? This is because the mystery of the gospel cannot be thoroughly apprehended by us without some good understanding of the economy of the law and also of the state of the things before the law. We cannot fully grasp the gospel if we take the Old Testament away. Do you understand that? The mutual respect... And dependence of the Old Testament and the New Testament are such that neither can be understood without the other. Nor can the entire system of truth as it is in Christ be collected without the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both are needed in order to understand the other. Imagine if Christ came into the world to save the world, to atone for our sins without the old economy preceding his actions. Meaning this, even though Christ didn't accomplish uh, even though Christ didn't accomplish the old covenant because it was not in the old covenant that that gave us life if we didn't have the old covenant how would we understand what Christ did on the earth right we would have no clue of the significance of Christ's work he could have been born as a filipino eating adobo pancit for whatever reason, Brother Louis likes Balut. If you don't know what that is, it's nasty. He could have grown up in that cultural context, died, and what he did would make absolutely no sense to us. We would need some kind of further understanding of what he was doing and why. We would need some kind of further revelation. God gave revelation prior to Christ to do what? To be our schoolmaster. To prepare the way for Christ. So that when Christ the Son shows us His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, and all of the things therein, we have a, we have a standard or an understanding by which we can interpret all of the acts of Christ. And it is the Old Testament. All the things that He accomplished by faith, that, that He accomplished and that we receive by faith, are understood because of the Old Testament. How would we understand sacrifice of Christ without the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? What was the sacrificial system of the Old Testament for? It's for the atoning of sins. What did they use? A lamb. A spotless lamb. Well, that makes sense when we see that Christ is sinless. If there was no sacrificial system, we have no category for penal substitution. Therefore, we would not understand what it means for Christ to stand in our place. How would we understand the righteousness of Christ without the law given to the nation? Punishing sin because of lack of righteousness. Showing that God's perfect perfect standard of obeying, of, of demanding a person to be righteous actively obeying the law, passively uh, being punished, all of these things would not be possible without the visible economy of Old Testament Israel. God did not reveal his work through seven abstract dispensations. God revealed this through the history of one nation, one people, and the institutions within that nation until they would all be fulfilled in Christ. How would we be able to understand the offices of Christ without the history of the prophets of Israel, the kings of Israel, the priests of Israel? All of these types prefigured Christ. Christ would have lived a unique life, but we would not fully understand him and the glory therein without the Old Testament. He claimed that he was greater than Solomon, but we could understand his invisible glory because of all that came before him. Without the Old Testament economy... And the covenants, we would not fully understand Christ. Melchizedek was therefore given to us so that we might understand Christ. So if you're sitting here today and saying, what does all this matter? Why does all this matter? Well, why are you here in the first place? What did you come for in the first place? To see how your marriage might get better? To see how your kids might act uh, more obediently? To see how your job might be better. To see how you might get a raise. Or did you come to consider Christ. And see him fuller. And see him clearer. And worship him better. My friends. We cannot unhitch. Any portion of God's holy inspired word. For it reveals to his people. The son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. That is pure heresy. From Andy Stanley. And it reveals for us what we've learned. That Christ is better. He's greater than Adam. Greater than Noah. Greater than Abraham. Greater than Melchizedek. Greater than Moses. Greater than David. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My dear friends, if you've learned anything this morning... Hopefully you have clarified the Lord Jesus has helped you or God the Holy Spirit has helped you to clarify Melchizedek. But ultimately you walk away saying, I will look to Christ for there is no one greater. Let us stand.